Welcome, viewers and listeners, to the Total Football Analysis EPL Podcast. We are the Thinking Fans Podcast. Each week, we get together with our besties, who are current pro players, real coaches, academics, and stat heads. In the end, we want to leave you with three or four cool, thoughtful bits about football. What wonderful gifts for Father's Day weekend. So many games, so little time. Ladies and gentlemen, start your engines. We have some 30-odd days of Premier League football. Fast and Furious 2020. Today, I'm joined by Coach David Seymour, one of the hardest-working football men I know. I'm also joined by Harshel Patel, the wizard behind the curtains of Oz. Finally, I'm joined by Sam Brotherton, a.k.a. the cleaner center half back of North Carolina FC. I'm host Chris Mumford, known as the professor, Bella Chow. We've got some games to talk about. Uh, we're going to recap, uh, and then we are going to have a cool-to-know segment uh, talking about right-backs, and then we're going to move to previewing games for the upcoming week. So, David, can you walk us through the, uh, the first big game? There were two games uh, uh, on Wednesday, but let's talk about Arsenal and Man City first. Firstly, Chris, I've got to say, those intros are getting better and better. Uh, <laughs> the the games, yeah. To, to be honest with you, I don't know about how everyone else feels. I've been a little underwhelmed by this week week's fixtures, but I'm not panicking yet. Uh, the first weekend of the Bundesliga was also pretty underwhelming, so hopefully it'll, it'll pick back up soon. But um, yeah, let's let's talk about City Arsenal. It was a game which uh, I'm going to put out there, Chris. I successfully predicted, right? <laughs> Definitely called that result. I'll give credit when credit is due. <laughs> Admittedly, I didn't factor in uh, David Luiz having an absolute shocker. But I mean, to be fair, maybe I should have done because it's not exactly what an impact player he is, huh? Big impact <laughs> player. Uh, yeah, it, it was it was a frustrating game for Arsenal. They couldn't really get going. Um, I actually thought that they had a little bit more possession, particularly in the first half, than I thought they would. But, I mean, I think, for me, the, the most um, interesting aspect of the first half, particularly, was City's pressing structure, where they really put a stranglehold on Arsenal, who was so committed to playing out from the back. And City's entire midfield pushed up to really leave little gap between themselves and the front line. And um, Arsenal just weren't able to penetrate the space that was left between City's midfield and defence. And there was quite a big gap. They weren't able to play through the press and hit that space. So they couldn't take advantage of that. And, and City really uh, suffocated them. I think the other thing that should be spoken about was City's fluidity and attack. Um, we saw Mares and Sterling dropping in behind uh, Jesus. And um, Jesus was kind of playing this like false nine uh, role for a lot of the, the game. And Sterling and Mares were able to to really bring um, Arsenal's defence quite narrow, coming in from the wings and, 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 and dropping into those spaces. And, and to be fair, they came deep to support and build up and they were wide as well. But specifically in attack, they dropped in behind, were narrow. And this allowed De Bruyne all this space out. He kept dropping out to the right flank. And he had all this space and we know what De Bruyne's delivery is like and we saw that throughout the game. And it was, yeah, really smart from, from Pep. And um, yeah, City looked, City looked great. And obviously, yeah, we know what happened in the second half. I think Arsenal fans are very frustrated with that. I, I don't think that 
I, I don't think they were going to get resolved in that game regardless. But it was a shame to see Louise fully implode. And obviously Arteta's now got these injury issues to deal with. So not an ideal start for Arsenal and it's not got much better since. Arshel, what's your take? Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, David spoke about the injuries issues that Arsenal have. I think um, we're going to see a similar trend as to what we saw in the Bundesliga with muscle injuries, where even today um, in the Liverpool game, which just concluded a few sort of minutes ago, um, Liverpool lost a couple of players to hamstring injuries. Um, I think there were a bunch of other teams. I can't remember specifics, but these two players, uh, these two injuries at Liverpool and um, the couple of injuries that Arsenal picked up show that that sort of trend will continue. So let's hope that uh, coaches are able to use the full extent of the bench they have. But with respect to the game itself, yeah, um, City were just, they took a while to get going, I think, in the first half. But once they did, um, Arsenal couldn't really cope. And uh, it, as as much as um, City's tactics were obviously superior on the day, it did also come down to, as you said, David Luiz's impact off the bench, but sadly for the wrong team. Sam, let me hear your impression of that impact player, uh, Luis. He, he plays a position similar to yours. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's tough. Um, obviously, I think coming off the bench is difficult. And I agree with David when he said he was a little bit underwhelmed by kind of the quality of the games um, over the week. But I think it's important to put into perspective as well kind of what these players have gone through. They haven't uh, really played a proper competitive game in months. So it's definitely difficult. And then kind of being thrown off the bench, um, isn't easy, but obviously he put his hand up to the game. He knows that he made a couple of individual mistakes and, and let the team down. And I mean, unfortunately, there's, there's no worse feeling. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's tough for Arsenal um, struggling in that second half position right now. Got a lot of injuries and kind of the next game uh, didn't go much better for them either. I, I read that uh, that transfer, that David Luiz transfer, although it was a free transfer with all the signing on fees and wages, that's cost him a total of $24 million, which... Yeah. Bearing in mind, Sven Mislintat left uh, Arsenal and they've, they've changed their recruitment structure since then and, and the, 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 the people that they've got making the decisions. I would not be very happy if I was an Arsenal fan. That doesn't strike me as forward thinking. And I think it, it goes to highlight the lack of depth in that squad. I mean, you could have a conversation about the lack of quality just in general, but there is complete lack of depth. And... I'm not a fan, if I'm honest with you, I think I said this already in the podcast of, of Rob Holding. I don't think he's a he's a top centre-back by any means. And it's just like you're looking at the Arsenal team and you're going, right, <laughs> who, who have they actually got that's going to come in and do a solid job at centre-back? They, yeah. they need enforcements massively at the back. And what's crazy is that we've had this conversation about Arsenal for the last like 10, almost 15 years about making sure that they have a – they sign – like solid defenders and they've, they've just not done this. I, I like Bayerine. Um, I like Tierney when he's fit. I think that they've, they've made a couple of moves that um, I think are promising. I like William Saliba and I think Pablo Mari is, is good, but there's no depth and they need that depth massively, particularly at the back. So I felt that, you know, Mikel having to see Pep uh, was a lot like, when Luke's hand was cut off. Uh, it, I think uh, Mikel probably has it worse because he lost several players and was really humiliated. I mean, it, and, and, and you have to think that the game could have changed without those two injuries early on in the game. 
that clearly the dynamics change so much there. Yeah, but, I, th- I think you could argue that Rob Holding and David Luiz are R2-D2 and c 3 <laughs> <then. laughs> Certainly playing football in terms of quality. <laughs> but what I was struck by is how Man City's backs were pushing up well past midfield, almost to, the, to 40 yards out. And it's like they were giving zero respect to Aubameyang and Pepe. And Pepe had that amazing goal. But if you look at how many times he's, made, he's taken that shot, he's only hit two of them. Uh, now, a goal, and a Premier League goal is still a Premier League goal. So you have to hats off to him on that. And that, is, that was Mares-like, right? But um, I, I'm just, I, I left that game, frankly, a little disappointed that that was the, the marquee, right? And secondly, God, it's, it's, it's uh, men playing against boys on the pitch. And it, it was more like a half-court basketball game than it was a full football game because the ball was in the entire ha- Arsenal's defensive half. So I, am, I, am, I feel badly for Arsenal. I, I look forward to them trying to get their act together. I will tell you, I'm, I'm glad that Man City showed up and they have the gas on and they were very entertaining and hats off to them for that. So, well, let's switch our, our, our attention to the other marquee uh, kickoff game, which was uh, really the uh, tempestuous Aston Villa and Sheffield United. Harshal, can you walk us through what happened there? Yeah, sure. Um, it was, uh, I mean, it finished as a nil-nil draw. It wasn't really the best game in terms of, say, viewership or, or in terms of entertainment but it still had sort of the classic Premier League uh, refereeing blunder where the, the, the keeper, the Aston Villa keeper Neeland, uh, he literally carried the ball over the line and into his own net but we had Hawkeye not register that as a goal and then and therefore Michael Oliver who's the ref his watch didn't buzz and Sheffield United got denied a pretty legitimate goal um, so in, in, in many ways that was sort of the perfect way to welcome back the Premier League as it was the first game that came back and we had a refereeing sort of blunder there. But other than that, um, what I was really, I mean, I wouldn't say I was surprised, but I think it's a concern for Aston Villa is the fact that they were playing really deep. They And, and that's surprising to, I mean, I, I expect that from them against a team like Chelsea, which again, today against Chelsea, uh, they were playing extremely deep and they were really defensive and I expect that against a team of that caliber, but they were it was the same against Sheffield United as well, and I and I, I thought it was I, I, that it maybe they gave them a bit too much of respect. And uh, Sheffield United were their usual well-drilled selves. They were getting um, overloads down the flanks. Uh, they were able to switch the ball. I mean, overload down, say the left, and then switch it to the right, and vice versa. Um, the centre backs were getting forward whenever they could. Uh, but from uh, just. The fact that Villa, the striker who was Keenan Davis, because uh, Sam- uh, Samata was on the bench, so he, Keenan Davis, who was supposedly out of, on his way out of the club, had to start, and he was just completely isolated. Whenever he would get the ball, it, there would be maybe um, an, a Villa player, maybe within 25, 30 yards of him. You know, there wouldn't be anybody there. So uh, it was really difficult for Villa. Although, to be honest, they did. If you look at the XG and if you look at the chances, they did create chances, but I still think that uh, it wasn't really a good performance from Villa. It, it, it ended up as a nil-nil draw and both teams took a share of the spoils. But it's really concerning because even today against Chelsea, for example, they got lucky, they scored a goal, 
but then Chelsea came back and scored two and won the game at the end. So they really need to be a lot more attacking if they not, want to win. Do you not think though that that's just a, a product of firstly where they are on the table right at this point in time, but also their defensive record throughout the season? They've actually been a relatively open team this season and they've got by far the worst defensive record in the league. And I'm totally with you in that, you know, they, they, they got lucky 100%, but I think that's kind of what they're hoping for. They're hoping to keep a tight ship, get a point as they did against Sheffield United. If they can pick up points, 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 it puts so much pressure on teams like West Ham to, to do the same. And right now, West Ham are looking at that result against Wolves this season going, oh, like, this isn't good. This is a really bad restart for us, particularly with Villa going and getting a point against Sheffield United, which is a, a game that... Going into it, I wasn't expecting them to do so. And they nearly did the same against Chelsea. And they said that Chelsea came back and scored twice. But Villa, Villa were obviously 1-0 up. And then, had, I mean, they scored two in real quick succession. But had they kept just their concentration after that first goal, I think they could have held on for another point there. And I think that they are going to sit back deep. I think they are going to have men behind the ball and just hope that they can catch a team out and get a lucky goal and just scrape points wherever they can. I... Sort of agree with you. Sorry to cut you off, actress, but I mean, I agree with you, David. But I mean, I just go back to the start of the season where, if you remember, I think um, I don't remember whether this was the opening game of the season, but I'm sure it happened on the opening weekend where uh, Villa played Spurs and they put on a really good show. They lost two one, I think, but they really took the game to Spurs. And I think they have the quality there with the likes of they brought John McGinn back from injury. Obviously, Jack Grealish is a brilliant player. Um, They've got uh, a couple of other guys in there who can do a job, who can who can sort of uh, trouble other teams from an attacking point of view. And I think I think it's I, I get your point about it is also about getting a point where you can and trying to put pressure. But there are only about what eight games left now, so it, it's also a case of maybe trying to take things a bit into your own hands rather than leave it to the likes of Bournemouth and West Ham to drop points and therefore get above them. But yeah, it's, it's a balance, but I think I think they need to be, my only, as I said, I was surprised that they did that against Sheffield United. I totally expected them the, that sort of approach against Chelsea, but I thought they'd be a bit more open and a bit more attacking in, against Sheffield United. But yeah, I mean, they got a point from the game, so. Yeah, helps. clearly both teams need need wins as, as we come down the stretch. Sam, let's let's turn our attention to that. What's the name of that Oxblood Red team? Uh, oh yeah, Liverpool. Uh, uh, yes, the uh, the Mersey the Merseyside Derby. Um, can can you walk us through what, what your take was on that match? Yeah, um, I thought it was it was definitely evident that the players had been been out of uh, out of their rhythm for a little while. The Liverpool dominated the ball, but they really struggled to create any any clear cut opportunities and kind of. Um, the quality that we saw before the break wasn't really there. I think Everton had the best opportunities. Um, I thought Cater looked really promising for Liverpool. Some of the interchanges between himself, Minamino, and Camino were, were pretty not, pretty easy on the eye, but kind of creating that final uh, opportunity at a shot off, shot off didn't really happen. Um, I felt that Liverpool really missed Andy Robertson having that natural left-sided um, defender. Kind of unbalanced their attack a little bit. They were primarily going down, down the right-hand side and but Trent's delivery was kind of a little bit more inconsistent than it usually is, um, which is kind of understandable. But yeah, they just didn't really have that quality to break Everton down. And I, I think you have to give Everton some credit. They defended really well on their two banks of four. And I think we spoke last time, but having a front two up top is, is difficult for teams to defend with, especially when Liverpool pushes on a lot of their attacking players and leaves their, 
their centre backs quite isolated with their full backs up high. So um, Richarlison and, and Calvert Lewin were a handful. They obviously they both had the opportunities. Um, Calvert Lewin kind of managed to get his on targets. Richarlison was a little bit wayward, but um, yeah, Liverpool were thankful for Allison making a good save towards the end, and Davies came very close with the post there. So yeah, I think um, at the end of the day, no was a, a fair result for both teams, and um, yeah, I think the substitutions didn't help either. Obviously. Um, a lot of subs, Klopp made a lot of subs in the game and that kind of disrupted the flow of Liverpool and then, then getting in a rhythm a little bit. But I think having had that head out now in 90 minutes or however many minutes the players got into the goal is going to be really good for them going forwards and hopefully we'll see an increase in quality kind of um, game by game. So, Sam, I really think the MVP of the game was probably Everton's defence. What, what what made it so solid against a high power offense? Besides, I get Liverpool wasn't firing on all cylinders; yeah. they're missing that final pass. But how did they organize themselves that made it so hard? Yeah, I think they um, set up in kind of a four four two, so two banks of four. Um, the two forwards, two forwards weren't weren't going on and pressing necessarily. They more pressing opportunistically, so kind of when they had an opportunity to go out, they would set traps. Um, but they were really well organized, I think. Uh, Michael Keane and Holgate were super solid at the back and I think Seamus Colin especially did a really good job up against Mane defending 1v1 a couple of times and had a great great challenges so yeah I think that's kind of comes from Ancelotti um, he set them up tactically like that and obviously I think they're just really communicating very well as a team and, and all getting in the, in the right positions and um, it makes it difficult so yeah even with the world-class players that Liverpool had they couldn't quite break them down today so credit to them. David give me your notes please. Yeah, um, no, I think I think it sounds pretty spot on. I think that for Everton, they had I think they had the chances, and I thought that they did well to hang in there. And um, I mean, they, they were inches away from from getting a pretty famous win there. I think with Liverpool, I totally agree. The balance of the team was was upset, and not just with without Robertson. I thought without uh, Salah, I thought particularly with the play being so focused on their right side, it just didn't didn't quite have the um, the spark that we used to seeing with their with their um, attacks. But other than that, I mean, it, it wasn't it wasn't a good game. Let let's be honest about it. it I I turned down watching Atalanta uh, give Sassuolo a, a lesson in football to watch this one, and I was a little bit disappointed. My life choices, I'm honest with you, Chris. <laughs> so um, yeah, I don't really have a huge amount to add to, to what Sam said. points and. Uh, Tactically, I thought Ancelotti got it spot on, and I'm, I think that Everton were very unfortunate not to actually get three points. Well, I I will I'll also bring up another MVP because they don't get enough love. Allison, um, <laughs> uh, you know, keepers, honestly, I, I I'm gonna I, I speak the truth, David. That's all I speak. <laughs> you know, I mean, the the truth is is there were there were two very hard saves that he had to make, right? Mm-hmm. It, did, it didn't seem like he was going to have any work. He could have probably walked off and gotten a cup of coffee in the first half and come back and not have a problem. But that second half, the, those two strikers, uh, particularly that one shot to the near post, he stood, he stood tall, leaned forward, both hands to the ball. So when it hit him, you know, it was able to deflect off and didn't deflect into a De Gea-esque uh, type goal, right? Um, so... Hats off to 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 Allison for showing up when he needs to show up. Not spectacular, but it, but he, he he made the saves when he had to. Enough me talking about keepers. Let's shift gears to <laughs> Manu Tottenham. I think there's a, there's a little football to eat on that bone. To talk to me about that, Harshell. 
Yeah, I mean, you're not going to talk about the keeper, but I think I have to because De Gea, I don't know what he did there uh, for the Spurs goal. Um, the shot straight at him. Uh, the XG value of that shot was 0.13. So, really should have saved it. Anybody who's seen the replay um, will probably agree. Although, I'm not going to go as uh, overboard as Roy Keane did in the Sky Sports Studios um, that that during the halftime show. But uh, on the overall the game, um, I think uh, I think Solskjaer sort of played into Spurs' hands a little bit in terms of the way he set up his... Uh, we all know United love to play on the counter and it was always going to be a game where uh, Jose sort of set up so that he was uh, he denied United space and that's exactly what he did. United ended up with 62% of the ball. But uh, United have not really done well this season or they haven't really got the results this season when they've had the ball that much. They've thrived on the counter attack and that's mostly what happened here as well. I think he got his uh, team selection a bit wrong as well. Um, Personally, I would have started Mason Greenwood over Daniel James because James doesn't really, he, uh, I mean, he, he doesn't do well in these sort of games where you need a little bit of invention. He does, he's a much better player on the counter-attack when against a sort of CS City, for example, where there's space to run into. And that showed he didn't really have a lot of impact on the game. Greenwood looked good uh, as well, didn't he, Harsha, when he came on? Yeah, exactly. Greenwood, when he did come on, did really well. He had a couple of good exchanges uh, and sort of combined well with the rest of the, the attackers and the midfielders. So I think that was one selection that he that Ole might sort of revisit if he had the chance. And otherwise, uh, Bruno Fernandez I think did well, but I think he was trying to do a bit too much, where uh, he was maybe taking on a couple of shots from distance, which he when he might have had a better pass and so on. But I think that's also a function of the fact that he's not really played too much with the team, and there's obviously been a three and a half month break. So. Hopefully, in the next couple of games, that sort of understanding will come back. And we had Paul Pogba come on for about, what, 20 or 30-odd minutes. And that sort of combination, we saw glimpses of the combination that Pogba and Fernandes can have. And Pogba obviously won the penalty, which Fernandes then converted. It's not exactly a direct uh, sort of uh, combination, but Pogba really uh, did have an influence on the game. He was He was able to find the passes which people were not able to find earlier. Uh, and uh, I'm really, it'll be, it'll be quite interesting to see how these two can play together. And I know we spoke about this in the previous episode as well. But if uh, Ole can get the two of them working in the same side as in terms of the defensive sort of side of the game, I think United will then be able to sort of get the sort of creativity that they've lacked and get service to Martial and Rashford. But yeah, the, David, David, what, what's your take on the match? It was another one that I was a little bit disappointed with, if I'm honest with you. It was a bit of a flat game. Um, I think individually I was impressed with Stephen Bergwijn in the first half. Um, I thought that it was a, a sort of a classic Mourinho thing to get the goal, sit back. <laughs> um, he was trying to force United into making errors. And to, to be honest with you, it's probably not the worst uh, tactic ever as well. I, mean, I think there's a few errors that went unpunished. Um, totally agree with Harshaw on, on Greenwood. I, I thought he... he was potentially one of the sharpest players on the pitch, maybe if not if not the sharpest. Um, I think that for United, well, there are some concerns. I think Shaw and uh, Wambasaka, I thought Wambasaka particularly um, didn't look good. And I know the stats; I haven't got them off the top of my head, but the statistics for Wambasaka as well were were not uh, pretty viewing. 
Um, I think I think with United, though, I'm looking at that team, Chris, and I, I hate to say it because I don't want to see Harshell grinning away, um, but they, they are a couple of pieces away from being a really good team. Maybe not next season, but the season or two afterwards. When we, we know Pogba is probably going to stay now next season purely because teams aren't going to have the money to be spending on him. So I'd expect Pogba to be the next year and Greenwood's going to be a year older, Rashford's going to be a year older, Brandon Williams is going to be a year older, Wan-Bissaka is going to be a year older. And I'm looking at a team and I'm going, actually, do you know what? They're a couple of moves away from certainly certainly being a comfortable top four team. I still think they're a little bit away from the Liverpools and Cities, but nowhere near as far as I think the fans of those teams would like to think. Sam, how, how, any, any thoughts on, on particularly the, the back lines, how, how they performed? Yeah, I mean, I thought we saw um, kind of a theme of some individual mistakes throughout the weekend. Pogba um, obviously made an impact on the game, and Dyer's kind of just dragged him down, essentially. I do wonder if that's kind of his um, defensive midfield instincts coming in a little bit. Um, obviously, as a defensive midfield, you kind of have a lower risk if someone goes past you and you hack him down, um, usually outside of the box, and you're not giving away a penalty. But obviously, if that was kind of, um, yeah, unfortunate to see, I think... Um, yeah, defensively, United would be disappointed with the goal they gave away as well. So, kind of balance each other out. But, um, yeah, I think tactically it was not the most entertaining game to watch. I think, like David said, um, you know, kind of set up to, to stifle United. And I didn't think they created a whole lot of opportunities. But I think as time goes on and teams get the rhythm back, we'll see um, better and more entertaining games. You know, when I saw Dyer playing, I thought, you know, maybe this is the position that he's suited to, to, to play. I mean, big, very aggressive. Um, I, I thought, uh, you know, Magu- he was a shade of Maguire, except a little lighter in hair color. But when you saw that, that PK, and quite honestly, I think that was a bit soft. I wonder if that was someone else besides Pogba. I, Sam, you disagree, but uh, I guess I'm, I'm a little more old school. I, I'm a little more old school about things. Someone as, as experienced as Dyer would allow themselves to get into that kind of position that late in the game to, to give away. Well, yeah. yeah but he had, he had no complaints. It, it was a big sure. You can criticize but, Mourinho as much as you like, but they were Dyer not making a bad decision away from three mm-hmm. points there. So. Absolutely, yeah. Good point. Yeah, Tactic might not just sort of be uh, make for an entertaining game, but in terms of winning a football game, I think it was it was almost very effective. Yeah, yeah. and and I can't help but chime in on the De Gea. I'll, I'll keep it really short, gentlemen. Um, <laughs> look, when you have a wide stance like that, hands to the side, the hands to the side are really to propel you to be able to propel you because you have a wide stance. And let me tell you, that wide stance, he's feasted off that for years. He's had some very very good games, but when you have a shot come in low to you just outside your knee to the left or right, you are, you're going to have trouble, troubles fielding that. And that was, that was the, uh, the uh, little alley in the, the, uh, the Death Star uh, that you just have to shoot the missile through and everything blows up. And that's, that's more or less what happened, in my opinion. So I don't think it was a, it, it's a, it was a, uh, a mistake in judgment. I think it's just that's how he set up, right? And, and you know, there, there are trade-offs to be made associated with that. So I know the good, I know the goalkeeper Twitter, Twitterverse has been a flame, right? Like, like Rome was burning uh, a flame in, in, in debating this. So I don't think we'll get it sorted out today. Do you know what's weird though, Chris? Sorry what's that? Is that a lot of the goals in this sort of opening like round of fixtures 
it's, it's, it's not really felt like proper football. So many of the goals have come from mistakes or actually just been outrageous individual efforts. Yeah. And it's not, there's not really been a, a huge amount of like well-worked team goals or just standard goals where you'd be like, okay, yeah. that's, a, that's a good goal. I thought, I thought today Newcastle against Sheffield United had some really nicely worked goals, but at the same time, Sheffield United were down to 10 men, so they were more easily pulled apart. So it's, it's, it's just felt like, and I guess naturally so, it's just felt like almost a, a pre-season and I think it's just still going to take a little while to get back to what we expect from the Premier League. Sam, did you want to say something? Yeah, I mean, I think I completely agree. I think we've talked about the uh, the mistakes, but there was a couple of rockets as well. I mean, Ben Chilwell and Pepe as well, um, both left-footed hits, but yeah, just some real individual quality. So I think that was kind of what separated the teams uh, in these games, those, those individual moments of either brilliance or, uh, yeah, not so brilliance. I also think if someone had told me that Craig Dawson would score a yeah. winner <laughs> <laughs> at any point in his career... Uh, I would be like, yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, that's a centre-half's dream. So I, I will tell you, I, I felt that, that players were trying to figure out what it's like to play 90 minutes of football, largely because they've had – literally they've had more time off now than they probably have in their entire football career, practically, unless there was an injury, right? I mean, yeah. certainly a lot longer than, than, than regular off-seasons. So I, you know, they were going fast and furious, and then all of a sudden things would just die off. And then by the seventy-first minute, it seems like you could you could walk around and, and and do whatever you do. Though, you know, to a couple teams' credits, I do think that Man City and Liverpool really really seemed to to show it. Though the connections weren't there, so we'll see. Two or three weeks, we'll see if I, I imagine everything. The engines will start getting tuned up. Speaking of tune-ups, uh, let's talk about Wolves and West Ham, David. <laughs> yeah it, do you know what it's another game I think I, I said a 2-0 Wolves win right <laughs> so we need to start putting these scores up and uh, scores up <laughs> I need to start putting some money where your mouth is <laughs> yeah, I definitely got do. a couple right um, so yeah it, it, it played out pretty much how I expected it to if I'm honest and no, no, like uh, taking any credit away from Wolves. I thought Wolves played well. Uh, I thought the scoreline was probably fair, maybe flattered them a little bit, but we, we certainly, West Ham certainly didn't deserve anything from the game. I think what you've seen, um, I've been talking about this today with a couple of West Ham fans, is that you're seeing the byproduct of really bad recruitment at West Ham. You've got most players fit other than Allah, um, I think it was maybe Obonna, those, those players aren't fit. But so we've got Albion Ajayti, who's a striker we saw with 20 million in the summer, and he's nowhere to be seen. And they're starting Mikel Antonio as a lone striker, which is, is difficult. He's done okay in that role before, but he's not a centre forward. And then I'm looking at the midfield, and there's no ball progression coming from central midfield at all. If you watch that game, West Ham retained the ball relatively well, but there was no penetration, particularly not in central areas. And for me, if, I, if I'm David Moyes, I think you need to start possibly Pablo Fernandes is in a deeper role, which is going to take a little bit away from us attacking, but there's no one with the ability to get that ball and just even drive forward with it. We're not even doing that as a team. And so that was very worrying viewing as a West Ham fan. There are some serious issues there that need to be ironed out before the next game. And 
we've got a tough initial run of fixtures, which I think I said last week, I'm not expecting West Ham to get anything from it. They can, brilliant, but it's not the end of the world. However, they need to be in a relative amount of form going into that sort of stretch of five games that are all winnable. And that's when West Ham need to pull themselves away from the relegation spot. So as a game, it, it told me that Wolves are, are in, in pretty much the same shape where they left off. I don't think they're going to... I think, I, think I, I could see them getting back into Europa again. I don't think they're going to make a push for the Champions League or anything. Um, but they, they looked solid. I thought uh, Raul Jimenez was, was very good. I think you saw the quality of a player that's far better than anyone he was playing against. And then for West Ham, like I said, I think there's some key issues there that need to be sorted out. I think Jeremy Ngakia has perhaps uh, made a bit of a mistake not signing a contract. I think some some fans on on the Twitter sphere seem to be impressed with him. I thought he was really really poor, um, and I thought he got found out. But. Well, good. So I think I think more or less is expected. Wolves took care of business to still keep them in contention. West Ham probably not not an unsurprising outcome. Um, so. You know, we'll, we'll kind of see see where we are. I think Man U, Tottenham, tie help the Wolves. Um, so uh, we'll see. I think the Arsenal Arsenal's all but completely out of contention at this point for Europa, even. So I think that's that's an interesting wrap up. Sheffield United, we'll kind of see. One point is is maybe enough to kind of keep keep them in the conversation, but they do have a murderer's row of 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 uh, fixtures do, that are coming. Do you up. think if they missed out on, let's say they missed out on the Champions League or even Europa League by two points, that they could legitimately try and sue Haw- Hawkeye or whatever the the company is called? Because that's insane. I mean, I would imagine West Ham would do the same if Aston Villa stay up by a point. Well, there are 20 million reasons why to do that if, 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 if you're going for Europa, more if it's Champions League. So uh, time will tell. Uh, I don't know if that's how, how football is done, but, uh, uh, you know, if, if, this, if it were the United States of America, heck yeah. Uh, so uh, <laughs> uh, we'll see. So let's switch gears. Um, kind of a cool to know. Harshel is going to give us a recap of sorts of right backs that we should be paying attention to. We did see kind of an underwhelming performance by the prototypical right back today, Trent Alexander-Arnold. But Harshel, uh, walk us through. I'll, I'll go ahead and, and share uh, the screen here. Yeah, so I basically um, was playing around with some data in Tableau, and this was as a sort of extension to my magazine piece, which, I, which I've done on who potentially should be the starting right back for England. And I then just pulled data for all the right backs and sort of put them on, uh, plotted them for a couple, for a few metrics on a bunch of charts to see what the data shows. So, uh, I mean, for the guys who aren't uh, watching us on YouTube and uh, listening to us, I'll try and give it as clear an explanation as I can. So, if I look at the first uh, sort of chart that we have here, it's a plot of key passes per ninety and final third passes per ninety with um, another added uh, metric of the accuracy of the final third passes, which is illustrated by the shade of the particular plot on, on, the, on the graph. And I mean, Alexander Arnold is just miles ahead of everybody else. He's, he's averaged, I think, 0.99 key passes per 90 this season, which is ridiculous. I mean, for a right back to be averaging one key pass per game, essentially. But if you what comes out from this chart is that there are a couple of players which I wouldn't really have thought would have been on this list. So, for example, there's Ashley Young, who's moved on to Inter Milan, but he did play at fullback quite a lot for United earlier this season. And he's done decently well for final third passes. 
um, Joao Cancelo has done again decently well, and he's got a pretty high success rate for final third passes as well, as does Kyle Walker. So you might think that um, City have a bit of a weakness at right back, and that may be so from a defensive point of view, but definitely from a creative point of view, it looks like they've got their bases covered. But another very interesting player who's popped up on this list is Ahmed El Mohamedi from um, Aston Villa, and he's uh, he's averaged almost 0.75 key passes per 90. Uh, and about six, a little over six uh, final third passes per 90 this season. So, I mean, Villa, you you won't expect to see a Villa fullback in any in doing well in this sort of a list, but it shows that they do have some creativity in that side. And uh, that's one of the most surprising results that I saw from this particular chart. Uh, if you want to move on to the next one, Chris. Right, now this one is basically progressive sort of uh, actions, which are progressive runs and progressive passes per 90. Once again, Alexander Arnold does really well on progressive passes. He's the, he's the league-wide leader for right-backs and probably, I think, in the top three in the league overall for all players. Uh, but he's not really known for going, uh, sort of making runs with the ball uh, up the pitch. He's more uh, someone who progresses the ball through passing. Whereas you've got Kyle Walker, who's the opposite. He does He does a lot more work on the ball in terms of running with the ball and getting it up the field. But he does well for progressive passes as well. He's got a little over nine progressive passes per 90. Um, again, some of the other standout players are Joao Cancelo is, is, does well on these metrics again. You've got Ashley Young who's done well, which maybe uh, illustrates why Conte, Antonio Conte went for him at Inter Milan despite his age and all of that. Uh, you've got Aspeliqueta at Chelsea who's, who's done who does well for progressive passes, not that much for progressive runs. And Ricardo Pereira also looks like a fine all-round player in that respect. Um, yeah, so uh, these are some of the more interesting players from a pro- ball progression point of view and how they can help the team. Uh, we've got another chart up here, which is crossing, which is obviously, as you would think, is extremely important for a fullback. Again, Alexander Arnold way ahead of the rest of the field, over 7 crosses per 90 and uh, uh, just about 2.2 deep completed crosses per 90. So for everybody who doesn't know what a deep completed cross or pass is, it's basically a pass that's received within a 20 meter radius of the goal line. So it basically illustrates how, uh, it's, it's basically a, a metric that illustrates the ability of a team to get the ball close to the opponent's goal. So Alexander Arnold does really well here, but again, you've got Ahmed El Mohamedi who is probably second in both metrics for uh, for deep completed crosses and crosses per 90. And he's again done really well on the success ratio for crosses as well. Uh, other players who've done well are Reese James at Chelsea, Cedric Soares, who's on loan at uh, Arsenal, and Daryl Janmat at uh, Watford. But I'm really surprised at how well uh, El Mohamedi has shown up on some of these uh, metrics. And he's not really played for Villa. Uh, so far, it's been Ezri Konza who's been playing at right back, but I think he, he would be a good source of creativity for the side. And finally, you've got defensive ability, which I have looked at through defensive duels per 90 and possession adjusted interceptions, which adjusts for the amount of possession a team has. So you don't have inflated statistics for players who play in teams which don't really have the ball. So then they have more of a chance to make those uh, defensive uh, sort of actions and therefore inflate their statistics. Uh, over here, and it's interesting to see that Sam Byram is sort of leading the way for possession-adjusted interceptions. Uh, Alexander Arnold is really in the middle of the pack for these statistics. And that shows that he's not really 
um, the best at defensive work, although that's also a function of the fact of the system and the way that Liverpool play. But uh, some of the guys who've done well from a defensive metric point of view are Juan Pesaka at, at United, uh, Cesar Spiliqueta again at Chelsea, Ricardo Pereira. And this shows that he is a sort of all-round right-back who can do the defensive and uh, offensive side of the game. Um, Jeremy Ngakia, who uh, David was talking about, has has had, a, I think he has the second highest number of defensive duels per 90 for all right-backs in the league this season. Uh, and he's got a really, he's got a pretty high success rate as well. So, I mean, again, that comes down to the system that West Ham play, and they are a lot more passive than other teams. But he has done well on that on that regard as well. Super, David. As a coach, what are the kind of key takeaways you're looking for with a uh, with a right back? I think I think um, you have to look at the way trends change that position, and um, you need, you want someone who's who's confident progressing the ball from central areas, which Trent does. Um, but at the same time, you want someone who can put a high volume of crosses in and, and be relatively accurate with them. I think when you look at crossing as well, if you're putting in a, a good amount of crosses, anything close to or above 30%, which sounds pretty low, is, is actually pretty good. I think uh, with a right back as well, or we're, sorry, just even general with a fullback, you're looking for players that are confident and comfortable pushing forwards overlapping but at the same time it really comes down to what uh, the head coach values so for example when you spoke about Ashley Young being valued by Conte absolutely Conte's always liked his wing backs players who are comfortable playing as a wing back which is perfect for Ashley Young um, being first of all comfortable playing putting the crosses in um, but at the same time being ball progressors that, that from that position you'd so often see that kind of player look to play a ball directly into the centre forward so again I mean it, I think Harsh has done a really good job. They're highlighting just some different areas which you would look at for fullbacks, but it all comes down to the manager. Sam, how about you? You, uh, you've, you've got you're playing with right backs. What, what, what do you like to see out of them? Yeah, I think um, Harshal and Dave both touched on a little bit. I think the system is really important. You notice that um, both Man City and Liverpool we play with very attacking, uh, forward thinking um, fullbacks. Their kind of players were higher up on those sort of metrics, and then. Um, a kind of reverse for the defensive metrics where the teams at the bottom of the league that are kind of more focused on having a strong defensive stability, um, they maybe had more higher defensive actions. So, yeah, it, look, it really depends on the, the way the team is set up. Um, obviously, Trent has kind of changed the position a little bit and it's, it's sexy to have a, a right back that's getting up and down and putting crosses in and creating assists and that's what everyone wants. But for me, a little bit as well, like as a defender, you want to be defensively um, sound first. So, you don't want anyone who's going to be a liability, and I think you got to do that first and foremost. Um, that's your priority, and then if you can build on that and add uh, more expansive parts to your game, then that's a bonus. Kind of. And I mentioned Wan Bissaka earlier, and that's exactly where he needs to improve. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I'm I'm going to be really curious. Uh, Harshell and I had a, a conversation offline about what the future of of right and left back is going to look like in 18 to 24 months. Are they going to migrate more towards the Trent Alexander-Arnolds? Are they going to be, or is it going to really kind of come down to the system? Um, you know, my, my personal sense is it is going to go more TTA, but at the end of the day, you get, they're going to get paid to prevent goals being scored, right? That's why they're called defenders. Um, so, well, good. Well, let's go ahead and, and, and switch to the last segment, which is a lightning round of, of previews. Um, on Tuesday, we've got Leicester versus the mighty Brighton. 
uh, uh, David, can you give us uh, your take on how that match is going to go? Yep, really quickly. I think it'll be a, a pretty open game. Um, I think you're going to see both teams. I mean, look to get the the as much possession as possible. I think you're going to see Leicester be more direct about it, but nevertheless, you're going to see them look to play out from the back. Uh, I think that it's going to come down to Vardy just being that little bit too quick for Brighton's defenders, and I think you're going to see maybe even a couple of goals for him. I know he's uh, one away from 100 Premier League goals, so I'd expect him to get it in that game. So I'm going to go two, two. I was going to say 2-1, but I'm going to go 2-0 uh, Leicester. Sorry, 2-0 Leicester. 2-0 Leicester. And does, does Vardy have one of those to his name or not? I'm going to say he's going to have both of those. To his oh, name. hello. Yeah. Okay, 2-0. I'm putting it down. I'm, I'm scratching it down on my piece of paper here. <laughs> so, um, Harshel, let's walk through the, the Sheffield United and the Man U uh, match. Walk us through. What, what, are the, what are the key features there? Any, any sort of uh, surprises we should look out for? Um, so, I think for Sheffield United fans, obviously the first thing is going to be that Dean Henderson is not going to be playing that match because he's on loan from United and as per the terms of the loan agreement, he's not going to feature against his, his uh, parent club. So, there is going to be a bit of a downgrade in goal that they're going to have. But other than that, uh, I expect them to come out as they always do with their system in place with um, their, the, the wide overloads and then switching of the play that I spoke about earlier as well. All of that will be in place. Um, the game earlier this season at Bramall Lane had, was a three-all draw. So... Although I don't expect it to be that open, but I think both teams will be going for it. Both teams need the win, especially with Chelsea winning today. Um, they've opened up a, a five-point gap on United, so United definitely need the win. So I can, I'm hoping that it will be a, a, a bit more open and that United, especially at Old Trafford, will, will try and get uh, uh, some goals. So I'm going for maybe a 3-1 to United. 3-1 Sheffield United is what you're saying? Uh, no, 3-1 Manchester United. <laughs> uh, okay, okay. I just want to make sure we were clear here. Um, so, David, let's go back to you on your on your team, West Ham versus Tottenham. Uh, some ag- some lightning in London. Talk to us about that. Yeah. Uh, unless anything radically changes at West Ham, then I think we're going to struggle to get the ball through the midfield. Um, I don't know if Ale is going to be, be fit. So, there's Antonio... I just, I just don't think there's going to be enough quality up top for us to get anything. Um, I think you're going to see Tottenham do what they did against United. I think they're going to get a first half goal and then they'll protect that. I can see one nil Tottenham. All right. Um, so, Harshal, let's go back to the Wolves Bournemouth game, which has some big implications with Champions League as well as uh, relegation. Um, I mean. I, I I don't think Burnmouth. I've been. Re, uh, I was not really happy with the way they sort of came through this weekend's games as well. Uh, I can't really see them doing anything to overcome Wolves because I mean they lost to Palace and that Crystal Palace aren't really known for their creativity and they managed to score two goals past Burnmouth. So uh, I really think Wolves will will sort of give them a bit of a run around and it's at. Yeah, Wolves are at home for as much as it counts in this sort of environment when there where there are no fans. But I still think uh, Wolves will be able to get over Burnmouth and probably a two 0 win to Wolves. Two 0 Sorry, what's the scoreline? Two 0 
2-0. Yeah. Okay. Um, Sam, let, walk me through the Liverpool and rejuvenated Crystal Palace. Yeah, I think Palace had a good result. Um, I think they're probably going to look at what Everton did to Liverpool today and sit up in a similar fashion, um, kind of sit in a deep block and make it difficult for Liverpool to break them down. Um, yeah, Liverpool will be hoping to have Andy Robertson and Salah back, which would definitely help their case. And I think having some minutes in the belt could help with their fluidity. Um, I think we'll be excited to be back at Anfield. I think they'll be motivated. They know they need the points. Um, they just want to get this this job finished as soon as possible, right? I think Palace is an interesting one where their motivation lies right now is kind of a pretty secure mid-table team. Um, I'm sure they'll, they'll still put up a good fight and kind of make it difficult for Liverpool. But I think Liverpool will be good enough to get one, especially home at Anfield, and they'll, they'll be up for the game. So I'm going to go for one more Liverpool. One nil Liverpool. You heard it here, folks. Um, Friday, there is the Chelsea Man City game. Uh, is this going to be one of those games that are so big in profile that it's going to be a dull affair, or is there going to be some fireworks, David? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't think you'll see Chelsea sit back to try and frustrate City. This is not their style, so I think it will be an open game i don't think that city will keep a clean sheet this time uh if um well chelsea haven't got david louise anymore so they should be fine um it'd be interesting to see i think that chelsea have got to be do what they can to stop de bruyne getting the space that he was able to against arsenal which is easier said than done you've got to watch out for kyle walker moving into a central position similar we just spoke about Trent alexander arnold similar to what you will sometimes see uh, arnold do but with Walker, that's more just to bring the opposition narrow and allow De Bruyne all that space where he can put the the, the balls, uh, the crosses, or just the balls in between the defenders and the goalkeeper. So there's some things that Chelsea will need to stop, and I don't know necessarily if they will be able to. So I'm going to go three two City. Wow, um, yeah. this is a big enough game, Harshell. Give, give me give me your prognostication on this. What what's the scoreline for this one, and why? I'd say I'd say um, maybe a one all. I really think that it, it. I think it has the potential to be the game of the sort of restart so far. Because personally, I was really impressed with how Chelsea played against Villa today, and and obviously they're two completely different teams, City and Villa, and the approaches that the two of them uh, will have. But I think they were creative. They they got the ball in attacking positions. I think the attacking uh, midfielders did really well. Mason Mount had a decent game. Uh, William was good. So, uh, and obviously then they got two quick fire goals and turned it around against Villa today. But I think they have the creativity and they have the sort of attacking uh, uh, firepower to be able to trouble City, especially with the weak backline that City have. And uh, they have the midfield as well to maybe be able to shut down De Bruyne a bit. I'd love to see De Bruyne and Kante come up against each other if they do sort of play in the same area, which they might not. But if they do, I think that duel will be fascinating if that does sort of if that matchup does happen. So I think it'll be an evenly matched sort of game, and it will probably end one out. Sam, I'm going to go two one to City. Um, I think they really improved as the game went on previously this last week and looked really good towards the end of the game. Um, like David said, I thought De Bruyne was looking really sharp, um, probably the best player on the pitch. I think Chelsea look good too, and I agree they'll they'll threaten City, but I think City have too much firepower at the end of the day. So I'm going to go for a two-one uh, City win. Guys, I am going to go ahead and be the outlier, the wild card. Mm-hmm. Um, as much as I am starting to admire Chelsea's coming together, I, I think that 
City wants to make an example uh, of the, of this match. Um, of all the teams, I felt that they were clicking um, the most. And, um, you know, I think that uh, wily old um, veterans are going to take the youngsters into the to the to the shed out back and and give them a good proper spanking. So I'm thinking it's three one. So uh, we sh- we sh- we shall see what happens on that. So let's let's finish things up here, guys. Um, what I do want to ask you as 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 we wrap here, what's kind of one observation or or cool to know that you got from this first week of play? Harshel, lead us off, please. Um. As I said earlier, there, there are going to be a bunch of injuries that we're going to see people getting hamstring pulls and all of that. So squad depth is going to be even more important than it was earlier. Uh, and it could have a pivotal role, you know, if, like, for example, we saw today, James Miller, who came in for an injured, Andy Robertson got injured. Then you had Matip going off injured as well. Uh, so that's going to play a big part, I think, especially in the first couple of weeks at least. So I think teams which have deeper benches are going to do probably going to do better. And we've already had a Mourinho rant about that already. He used just two substitutes against United in, in the game on Friday. Instead, I didn't have anybody on the bench to use, which is just, I mean, that's just Mourinho for you. But yeah, you're already going to start to see some of that play into how matches finish and how, and the results that we see in the first couple of weeks. Nice. So injuries is is, is going to be a key key storyline here. Sam, how about you? What What's your take? Uh, what what surprised you this this week or what did you leave with? Um, yeah, I wouldn't say it was necessarily surprising, but I thought as a trend throughout the games, we saw that defensively, um, the def- defense was on top, in, in my opinion. Um, I think in terms of uh, coming together as a team and finding those attacking movements, it's, it's a little bit more difficult than kind of uh, creating a defensive formation. So I think, um, yeah, there was some good defensive performances kind of besides those individual mistakes. And I think... Um, as time goes on, we'll start to see more goals and maybe those defenses be broken down. Interesting. David, you've got uh, some particularly valuable insights as you've been following Bundesliga so closely. So you're, you're kind of a fast forward two or three weeks ahead. How can you apply what you've learned from kind of the Bundesliga experience and what, did you, what have you learned this last week? I think you're going to see the big teams are going to not trip up against any of the smaller teams. And that is down to the five substitutions rule more than anything. I understand why it's been used. But unfortunately, due to squad depth, it just provides these bigger teams with a much bigger advantage than they should be getting. And you, you've seen the, in the Bundesliga, you've seen those stronger teams just continue, continue to win. And I, I think it'll be the same thing in the Premier League, unfortunately. Fascinating. Well, my last one, unsurprisingly, deals with goalkeepers. Um, uh, thus far this season in the Premier League, 35% of goals have been scored in breakaway situations. I was struck by the lack of um, one-on-one um, goals that were scored this uh, this week. In fact, uh, the only real showcase was was Leno, who I thought did a, a fabulous job at Man City. That could have easily been a 7-0 game. But I was struck by the in, in the other matches. I just didn't see as much breakaway situation. And it, it could be that the offenses weren't firing on all pistons. And to Sam's point, defenses are kind of, kind of who ruled this week. Uh, and you just didn't have as many of those situations. So I'm going to be really keen to figure out um, how that distribution plays out. Because I, I imagine it's going to normalize over time. Gentlemen. 
That was fabulous. Keep your seatbelts on. We're going to be really, really busy in the next 30 days. We'd like to thank Total Football Analysis. They are the world's largest open source soccer analyst community. Please visit www.totalfootballanalysis.com. Join us on our next Football Thinking Fans podcast. For now, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao.